This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in Na- Naples, Italy, so I, I had a wonderful Ooh. pizza for lunch, and uh, yeah, I'm exploring the city, so I'm having a wonderful time, actually. That's lovely. <laughs> How about you? I'm, I'm good. You know, it's another beautiful day in New York City in the fall, so I, I can't complain. And who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, today we've got, uh, uh, well, we've got a team of people really, uh, uh, headed by uh, Benjamin Holmes. And uh, they, uh, Benjamin works for uh, Nanocon. And Nanocon is doing something that is incredibly complicated and incredibly uh, complex, really. And it's, it has to do with cartilage. And cartilage is kind of like this really, uh, really super special kind of composite material that deteriorates in a lot of people, or kind of deteriorates in all of us, really, depending on all sorts of things that we do, from diabetes to how heavy we are and how old we are and stuff. And that's a big, big problem. Like It'll affect like over a billion people or more going forward. And, and people have been trying to look at cartilage implants and cartilage repair and cartilage and any kind of solution, really, to, to re-inject cartilage in some way back and, and to make cartilage healthy again. And, uh, you know, Benjamin and the team at Nanocone think they may have a solution for, for some of these uh, cartilage-related issues. So, so that's really exciting, and the, really the impact of this is, is, is uh, potentially very, very vast. So, so welcome to the show, Benjamin. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So first, well, first explain a little bit, what does Nanocone do exactly? So Nanocon is an early-stage medical device company, um, which is developing an implant, uh, which is designed to treat, as you, um, you know, very eloquently pointed out, cartilage damage and deterioration. So cartilage is, uh, just to kind of orient the listener a little bit more, uh, it's basically uh, a very specialized tissue, which you can find, you know, all throughout the, the body, uh, plays a lot of roles in the skeletal system, but one of its uh, biggest and most important functions is it actually provides the uh, low friction and shock absorbing uh, material in joints. So virtually all the joints in your body are actually lined with some kind of surface um, made of cartilage. And that cartilage is, you know, anywhere from, uh, you know, a millimeter thick to several millimeters thick, depending on, on where you are. Um, and it's a it's a really interesting tissue and it's a really interesting material because it's, it's very highly evolved to do its job. So it's really, really good at providing that that, you know, repetitive low friction surface in something like a hip or a knee. Um, and it's really good at providing, um, you know, that that shock absorbing capability. So if you think about it, somebody is you know walking or running or being active, the fact that you can, you know, have a stride, you know, hit the ground, have an impact, you know, jump up and down. Um, you know, all of that is because the cartilage, you know, protects the joint and protects the skeletal system. But what what cartilage is not good at doing is it's not good at lasting uh, for the entire average lifespan of a human being. So um, the, the big challenge is that cartilage, unlike a lot of other, really all other tissues in the body, uh, doesn't have uh, a a system of blood vessels. So there are no blood vessels in cartilage. And that's part of the reason why cartilage can undergo all of these repetitive forces and stresses. Um, but that also means that cartilage is very, very uh, bioinactive. So there are cells in cartilage, but it's at extremely low density. And those cells sort of maintain the tissue and they maintain the collagen network on kind of the, the micro level. But if you have something like a tear or uh, you know a, a hole that forms um, any kind of actual degeneration of the cartilage, they really can't do anything about it. So cartilage can't heal itself. And so once people start to sustain damage to the cartilage and they have wear and tear, uh, this this basically leads to pain. And that's really what the disease known as, known as osteoarthritis is. Uh, you know, it's it's the the damage or the breakdown of the cartilage, which then leads to, to pain because the underlying bone is no longer protected. And that's why people have arthritic pain. And, uh, you know, if, if these, these injuries are left completely unaddressed, 
the damage worsens, uh, the condition of the bone really deteriorates. People actually develop these big, like almost like golf ball size cysts in the bone. You know, other tissues can break down as well. And, and this is really the disease state known as advanced joint disease. And that's why people end up needing a knee replacement. Uh, and so it all kind of starts with the cartilage. And that's really where Nanocon is focused. We've uh, developed an implant uh, using uh, novel polymer materials and also 3D printing, uh, which is designed to actually fill in and stabilize these potholes really, uh, you know, much sooner in someone's life when they're diagnosed. So instead of having to go through years of, you know, potential rehab, um, multiple surgeries that might have, uh, you know, limited uh, lifespans and then eventually needing a knee replacement, you know, our, our proposition for patients is you get the nanocon implant, the surgeon, uh, you know, puts it in the knee in an, in an easy, minimally invasive procedure. They guide it into place and use it to fill these potholes in the cartilage. And then that, that stabilizes the healthy cartilage so you don't lose any more cartilage. More importantly, it protects the underlying bone so you don't actually develop these kind of more serious, um, you know, later in life problems that end up leading to a knee replacement. And then the real magic of the device is that, uh, you know, our material combined with a complicated 3D printed structure actually provides what we refer to as a, a scaffold. So, uh, you know, in this context, a scaffold means any, any type of structure um, or material which is designed to actually support cell growth and grow new tissue. And so in our case, the scaffold is designed to actually absorb blood and uh, stem cells from the underlying bone. So it, it draws those cells up and then it actually guides those stem cells into growing new cartilage. And so really the, the long-term benefit of, of the product is that uh, it actually can regenerate uh, healthy real cartilage um, and that's really the key to reversing the disease state, reversing the damage, and then also, as, as I kind of alluded to, stopping this cascade of other problems, which eventually need to uh, lead to really invasive things like a knee replacement. Yeah, that, that's amazing because I thought we always think of there's a couple of things here that I really, really want to unpick, unpack here because it's like it, there's a lot going on. Because on the one hand, first off, you know, there's a lot of other stuff. You get a skin graft, or you could take skin from one part of your body and put it on another. You could grow a bone in your you know, lower stomach and put it on your nose. That's really, that's been really, really difficult to do with cartilage so far, right? Kind of like these alternative kind of methods to regrowing it, right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, decades ago, there actually was a procedure, uh, which was sort of like that. It was sort of an attempt to try to graft cartilage, um, from one area of the body to, to another. And it was, it was referred to as um, something called a mosaic plasty. And so as, as you might imagine, you need most of the cartilage in your body. You know, it's not like something like skin where you can take a piece of it, transplant it, and then the, the place where you transplanted will also potentially, you know, regrow or repair itself. Um, you know, you really can't do that again because cartilage isn't going to heal itself. And so surgeons would take these very tiny uh, samples, you know, smaller than a centimeter. Uh, you know, they try to take them from areas of the knee or areas of, of other joints where they thought it wouldn't cause pain. And they try to sort of puzzle piece them together into the, the damaged area of the joint. Um, and it just, it just didn't really work very well. Uh, and people had a lot of problems with, you know, issues with those sites where the surgeons took the cartilage. Um, you know, the, the, the reconstructed surface didn't also last very long, not more than a couple of years. And so it really kind of fell out of fashion. What sort of arose to replace it is something called an allograft. And that's basically a transplant of cartilage from an organ donor. So just like you would get, uh, you know, just like you would get like a living heart or a kidney or an organ from someone who's died and is on the organ donor registry, um, there are tissue banks and sources uh, that also harvest cartilage grafts. Uh, and so that's really sort of, I would say at this point, considered, I guess you could call it the clinical standard, although we've talked to hundreds of, of surgeons in the space. Nobody believes that there's actually anything that you could truly call a clinical standard. but um, Cadaveric allograft is the treatment that technically has has the best outcomes currently, but it's so hard to get that tissue. And so to kind of put it into context, there's roughly 700,000 uh, knee arthroscopies every year. So, you know, these are the non-knee replacement earlier stage interventions on people's damaged knees. Uh, and there's only like 15,000 uh, cadaveric allografts done a year. So it's it's hard to get that tissue. You know, it really 
uh, also causes a lot of headaches for both surgeons and for the patients because you usually have to wait for those grafts. You know, the average wait time is about six months. Uh, and so it's really, it's really just not a, a very good scalable treatment uh, for the patients. And then there are other potential complications. I mean, just like with an organ, you can have, uh, you know, donor site rejection. Um, sometimes the, the cadaver graft, if it's not properly aligned, um, you know, doesn't integrate well and you end up getting a failure. So there can also be, you know, these other, other complications. And it's with something that's already like quite expensive and you as the patient and, and you as the, as the care provider have waited a really long time. And so that's the other, I think, really critical benefit of what NanoCon is doing. Um, you know, our technology is not a tissue. It's not a graft. It's not cell-based. You know, it really is this synthetic material that acts like cartilage. And then, you know, as I mentioned, through 3D printing, we can make this complex environment that the body likes to grow into. But the implant as a product is a, is a relatively low cost and, and shelf-stable consumable. So right now, when surgeons are trying to do these graft procedures, you know, the, the patient gets MRI'd, um, you know, the surgeon also might do what's called an investigatory scope, where they just go in with an arthroscope and look at the damage. You know, they, they assess the, the injury, they recommend allograft transplant, and then the patient's, you know, waiting potentially six months or more um, to, to, to actually receive the graft and then the surgery has to be scheduled and performed and then it's about a six month recovery time. So if you kind of stack up all of this, the patient is sort of going almost on like a two year process to go from diagnosis to, to full recovery. With something like Nanocon, um, the clinic can literally have like just a box of, of Nanocon implants sitting in their storeroom, you know, alongside, uh, you know, metal, metal surgical tools and sutures and just sort of all the standard kind of consumable um, uh, materials and products that they're already using. Uh, and then the surgeon can basically just pull, pull the device off the shelf and use it as they want to use it. Um, and then for the patient, you know, you've got knee pain, you get diagnosed with this problem, you know, maybe it takes you three weeks to get scheduled for OR time, you get treated with the nanocon. Um, and within two, you know, two weeks, uh, you're, uh, you know, already up and walking around. Uh, and then within a really short period, uh, you know, we're estimating, uh, you know, based on our uh, initial studies that within, you know, two or three months, patients could return to full activity. So really, I mean, you're talking about going from this, this very arduous to your process to, you know, less than six months to be treated and fully healed. So it, it's, it's really, you know, it's really this perfect marriage, I think, uh, you know, with our technology of one, something that has the, the capacity to be, to be profoundly more effective for the patient. Um, but, you know, as a product, as something that surgeons and hospitals are going to be, you know, using just really makes sense for their workflow and, and really is a, is a, you know, extreme improvement upon, um, you know, the unit economics of how care is provided now. Uh, and so that's, that's really what we're all about. You know, we're, we're about providing superior outcomes for the patients, you know, enabled both by new technology, but also enabled by technology that, that really saves the system money and saves the system a lot of time. Question. Uh, just how do you bond the, sorry, it's nano, nanocon. Nanocon. Yeah. Yeah. How do you bond it to the existing um, cartilage and does it, what's its lifetime inside the body? Yeah, absolutely. So we basically use like darts essentially. Uh, and so there are varieties, uh, you know, variety of these things already used for like securing grass. I mean, basically it's a, uh, you know, a biocompatible or a bioresorbable nail is the best way to think about it, which you essentially just use to tack the graft into place. So we have our own uh, dart system that we're developing, um, but, you know, they all they all essentially work, um, you know, in, in the same practice. Um, what we've shown in our in our current studies is that, um, you know, those darts basically keep the implant in place uh, long enough uh, for new tissue to grow into the implant. And so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, very active stem cells migrate up from the bone. They very quickly invade the implant and then that tissue kind of grows out and bonds with the surrounding cartilage. So it's really, you know, we're not like gluing it into place or the material itself is not sticky, but the regeneration happens so quickly that um, you, you get this very quick, like natural bonding of the new tissue to the surrounding cartilage. And then the implant itself, so there's got to be a shock absorber part because it does these two things, right? It's like it's it's it replaces the shock absorbing ability, 
and then there has to be also some kind of like you know like kind of like disseminating liquid part or is that or disseminating kind of art to get to to engender that kind of colonization yeah yeah absolutely so yeah i mean that's that's also one of the key innovations you know a lot of other people that have tried to do things in kind of the cartilage regeneration space have, have either focused on replacing the mechanics of cartilage or they've focused on trying to regrow the cartilage. And we have a, we have a, a technology that really does both. So the material itself is um, uh, really a composite of, of several different things, and that's pretty proprietary. But what I can tell you is that the main constituent uh, is actually nylon. The material is basically this, this you know, nylon-based composite that has kind of a, a highly aligned fibrous structure that simulates the aligned collagen bundles and cartilage. And so that gives the material uh, cartilage-matched mechanical properties. So it, so it kind of acts like this force, um, you know, the shock absorber and this force diffuser like cartilage does. And then when we 3D print it into the matrix, that creates this, this uh, complex structure in this environment that then allows cells to interact with the material and you get the regenerative effect. Um, the the uh, implant also does react to fluid. Um, so you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, it might absorb or disseminate fluid. Uh, and that's also part of the part of the characteristics of the material that it hydrates in a similar fashion to cartilage as well. So uh, when you put it in water, um, it becomes, you know, softer and squishier, you know, basically goes from kind of like a stiff material to something that acts like cartilage. That's super cool because that's always been the problem, right? The cartilage is like many forms essentially. It's like a natural composite that can really change, right? And it's like a yeah, yeah, that makes it really difficult, I think. And then yeah, I, this, obviously, then this doesn't break down in the body anytime within a person's lifetime, I would assume, because yeah, it's nylon so not, based. So, and, yeah, so nylon is not generally considered, um, you know, bioresorbable, uh, at least in in terms of how the FDA and how the industry, you know, think of quote unquote biodegradable materials, but Nylon actually does degrade. Uh, it's just it's over a period of years as opposed to a period of months. And so, but uh, I also thought nylon absorbs moisture quite well, and you're putting it in a very humid environment. Okay. Yeah, ex exactly. So there are characteristics of nylon that that you know do make it you know suited um, you know for this application. And, and then also, as I mentioned, we do other things to enhance that effect. So there are other things in the material that also enhance that kind of like interaction with fluid. Yeah, I think I think that's really amazing what you guys are doing because it's it's like, uh, but I could imagine that getting acceptance for like the implant that does everything kind of like because up until now you had people saying oh yeah it's going to be like you know titanium implants but then for cartilage and then you have other people saying oh we have a treatment and you guys are like no no we have everything <laughs> everything you've ever wanted is that <laughs> is that kind of like difficult for you guys to get acceptance then from the surgical community and like the people like the FDA and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I think that when, you know, especially with a medical device or anything in pharma or biotech, there's many different stakeholders. Um, so there's there's a lot of different ways that, you know, people kind of view what you're doing. Um, and they have like, you know, they all have different concerns um, in different perspectives. I think what we've actually been really delighted with is that the surgeons really embrace this idea. Um, and, and I do want to clarify too, that we have really, uh, you know, as a business, we've really focused on sports medicine. So our customer is not that general orthopedic surgeon that's, you know, just doing a bunch of metal hip and knee replacements. It really is this, this so-called sports medicine specialist. And so this is someone, you know, who's exclusively doing either arthroscopic or minimally invasive procedures. They're exclusively treating well, I don't want to say exclusively, but they're, but they're basically treating people that are either too young for something like a joint replacement or uh, people that are sort of like right at the cutoff. Maybe they're candidate for joint replacement, but they see all the issues and they want to actively seek alternatives. So the sports medicine surgeon, you know, is really relegated to this world of sort of, you know, trying to do surgical procedures that, you know, as I've touched on, don't really have great outcomes. You know, they're trying to do these things like you know, tissue grafting, cadaver tissue grafting, or, or cell therapies, they're running into all these challenges with, you know, trying to marry very expensive, hard to procure treatments um, with, with limited or mixed outcomes. And so they're extremely excited about new technology because they don't think anything that they currently have really works. So just from an intellectual perspective, they're really open to trying new things. And then when I tell them that other aspect of the product that, hey, this isn't this isn't another tissue product. This isn't another cell product that requires complicated course, uh, you know, sourcing, complicated usage, 
headaches with the cost, et cetera, et cetera. This is something that you're going to afford to be able to buy a box of 50 or 100 and it's just be waiting for you and you can use it as you want. They really get excited about that. And uh, to, to kind of put a little color on, on that, some of the surgeons we work with have told us that a good surgeon probably does 15 to 20 cadaveric allografts a year. They think that um, with something like Nanocon, they could easily do 200 procedures or more a year. So they they really perk up at that aspect as well. And that's kind of, that's kind of what I uh, you know want to keep touching on here is that we've really thought about the technology and the product, and we've really kind of married you know incentives to the healthcare system along with you know significant benefits of the patient. Because you're right, if you have a, a phenomenal treatment that will cure people. But it's really difficult to use. It's really expensive. Surgeons aren't going to aren't going to want it or adopt it. And um, they just really love the story that we've told so far. And it's re- been really exciting too because we're at a point in our development now where you know we do have um, finished product, things that have been extensively tested, um, and and we've started to have samples that we can put in the hands of surgeon. We can go we can go into these skill labs with them, and they even love just the way it handles. You know, it's kind of something we hadn't really thought about, but now we're starting to get really good feedback on that as well. That you know, these, these tissue graft procedures, you know, they usually have to be done open, which means you, you can't do it arthroscopically. You have to open up the joint, um, you know, opening the joint and disturbing the joint capsule means, you know, longer recovery for the patient. You know, it's a longer procedure. So it means more OR time and there's a higher risk of infection. Um, so surgeons like to be as arthroscopic as possible. So the fact that the Nanocon device is, you know, behaves like cartilage in compression, uh, but it actually is more flexible than cartilage. So, you know, it, it can withstand being folded or bent, which means you could actually get it through a small arthroscopic incision. You can manipulate it with tools. And then also it's pretty easy to cut it and shape it. And so, you know, a lot of the time, you know, nine times out of 10, these, these lesions are pretty, you know, confined, you know, circular-ish uh, spots. But sometimes, you know, especially in more advanced arthritis, they'll be really oblong or they'll be really irregular. Um, and we've had surgeons in these skill labs show that you can take the nanocon device, you can kind of like match it to the shape of the lesion, and, and then you can trim it with, you know, a scalpel or with scissors. Um, and it, it maintains its integrity, it can still be handled, it can still be placed. And so surgeons also really love that. It's basically just from a, just purely from a handling perspective, the product is, is superior to what's being done now. So, you know, it's been really um, interesting to be at a point where we can now kind of progress beyond just what's the story and what's the vision and actually put a put a potential product in, in people's hands and have them give that really good feedback. I was curious, given that you, I get the advantage of making a singular thing that uh, a surgeon can just quickly, you know, change for their purposes and then go in orthoscopically and then drop <laughs> it in. Is there, is it just the complexity of having, since you're doing a, an MRI, Theoretically, anyways, like you have 3D data that you could therefore theoretically print the perfect size version of this, or is that just not time conducive? I guess as well as it's just more difficult. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and and I think a very apt one for you know the platform we find ourselves on here because yeah, you know, patient specific device production, you know, is sort of I would say what what people more traditionally think of when they think of 3D printing applied to healthcare. And certainly, um, you know, doing one-off, very patient-specific versions of an implant is, is, you know, adds a lot of value in certain applications. And that was our original concept. I mean, we originally thought that we were going to be utilizing um, that aspect of 3D printing early on. And, and we basically had the same assumption that you just said that, oh, like people are getting MRI anyway. Like you've got the image right. data. We've got the and data, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You've, you've got the data. Aren't people going to want to use the data? Right. Um, and and what, was, what was an interesting finding was that um, MRI machines that are powerful enough and um, uh, advanced enough that they can do like really like sub-millimeter accurate scans are really rare. Um, they do exist. But they're really expensive, and most people in this setting don't have them. So for the most part, people are being imaged on, you know, older, like more traditional MRI machines, which, you know, sort of have an accuracy of about two millimeters. Um, And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, a tissue that's anywhere from three to five millimeters thick, and then these lesions, you know, which are typically like, you know, one to two centimeters, but can can vary quite a bit. you know, we really just kind of found that there wasn't a lot of value in doing something that was precisely matched. The other thing that's really important is that when people have these lesions, 
you know, the lesion has a relatively defined location and shape, but the tissue around it is diseased. So, you know, it's not like you have healthy, you know, a healthy cartilage margin with a hole. It's like you have a hole and then you kind of have like maybe like, you know, half a millimeter to two millimeters of like, you know, deteriorating cartilage that also has to be removed. It's very hard to know what that looks like until you're actually in the joint space. So the imaging doesn't provide the whole story, essentially. And so that's something that kept coming up when we first started to actually talk to the surgeons who, you know, are going to be our customers. Um, you know, they basically said that, that, you know, we can image the lesion, but then we get in there and we have to remove more tissue than we thought. Um, there's also, uh, you know, potential challenge because these, these arthritic lesions and even traumatic lesions are not static. They continue to degenerate. And, uh, you know, one surgeon told me that you basically have a three month window um, to treat somebody until the degeneration changes. And so if you don't catch somebody within that three month window, you know, you might you might have imaged them and you might have planned and you might have, you know, produced this patient specific device. And then maybe it's changed again once you're actually doing the surgery. And so, you know, all these things kind of stacked up um, to, to really kind of show that I think in this specific application, there just wasn't really value for the, for the surgeon. And there wasn't really like a clinical benefit to doing something that's patient specific. And then the other thing that I mentioned is that, um, you know, they really want something that's off the shelf, not just because it's more efficient, but also a lot of the times these lesions are, are diagnosed when the surgeon's in the knee fixing something else. Uh, which was also really interesting to learn. Oh, and they can yeah. just grab it and then throw yeah. it in. Yeah, and uh, so that's something that a lot, especially people that that you know do these lesions, but also do a lot of ACLs. Like, like I think ninety percent of adult ACL tears end up having an associated cartilage defect, just because of the trauma in the joint basically accelerates this arthritic degeneration. So they basically said, you know, a lot of the time I'm I'm, you know, doing an ACL repair and I find a big cartilage lesion. And so if I had something like Nanocom where I could just you know, say to the, uh, you know, one of the attendings in the OR, go grab me a Nanocon, um, that would really be perfect. So there's also that element of it too. No, it's interesting though, because we always approach this from an additive perspective of like, customize, customize. So it's interesting that you, <laughs> yeah. you met the real world and the real world is like, no, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, yeah. give me the product, but not custom, please. Yeah, yeah. No, I love, yeah. love the idea that you're customizing, there's, you're making material, you're making unique material like Gore-Tex or... Uh, but like, you know, with a really, really specific uh, kind of kind of use that's optimized for the space. And, and you're just making that material available. I love it so much. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, I like the idea how you always keep referring to nanocon it or give me a nanocon kind of, it's just kind of like, it's like a, it's kind of like human glue and like, it's like a thing. It's not necessarily like a, a really complicated procedure that, that, that you have to start uh, a week uh, in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, very happy that people respond to that and that you kind of picked up on that because, you know, that's something that also in general has plagued, you know, not just orthopedics, but I think, um, you know, medicine in general, this, this sort of instinct that people have to just make things more complicated. Oh, if things are more complicated, then it's going to be, it's going to be better for people. I think that we, you know, have put a lot of time and energy and effort into engineering this device, but, you know, the product itself, the thing that, you know, the patient's going to be treated with the thing that the surgeon's going to inter interact with. It's, it's simple and straightforward. And, and, you know, that's, that's really, I think the key to, again, making sure that, you know, people get the best care possible and actually benefit from these innovations. I think that's really wonderful. And I've, I've been thinking a lot of time, I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about like reverse osmosis, water filtration and um, the biofilms and coatings for implants and stuff. And you really see this, this kind of made material thing is magic in and of itself. Cause you're like coming up with like something like a completely new alloy or a completely new material just, just for this one use case. So I think it's, uh, I think that, that's a really fantastic way forward, you know, uh, apart from spatial specific medicine, which still could play a role in some sense, uh, I guess. But, do, um, do you see applications for nanocon outside of the human body? The yeah, you know, I think I think that's an interesting <sighs> question. I mean, we certainly have thought about applications for other types of implantable devices, you know, soft tissue reconstruction all throughout the body. But yeah, I think the question of you know would it have uses for non medical applications? Um, I, I think it's an interesting one. Um, you know, I think it does have the potential. Um, you know, to maybe be like a, you know, like a better, like more wear resistant um, surface. Uh, you know, and again, I'm, I'm totally spitballing here. So this is not, 
something. No, no, no. It's not on your plan or something, but yeah. Yeah. But you know, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, maybe it could be like a better tread, um, you know, on shoes. Um, maybe there's, uh, you know, maybe there's an application in, uh, uh, tires. Um, maybe it could be incorporated as like a next generation tire material. You know, I'm not sure if there's any, any application in, um, I don't know, things that get wet, (laughs) I guess is the best way to put it. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, yeah, yeah. Make some gloves out of it. Gloves. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. People want wet gloves. But you know, I I think, you know, and that's the thing, right? Is like, you know, what we've shown is that it's, it's this kind of like, you know, durable, uh, material in a water environment. So I'm sure that there's all kinds of things that I've never thought of, uh, or that we've never thought of where you need something like that, where you need like a durable material or you need like a durable kind of, Kind of wear wear resistant or load bearing surface in a wet environment that maybe it could be applied to. So yeah, I think I think that there certainly could be you know interesting applications out, outside the body. Uh, and I guess if anybody's listening to this who wants to license the technology from us for that, uh, hit me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I'm thinking the whole time we were talking, I was thinking of Igus, right? So Igus has this these kind of very smooth materials, right? And they've, they've used this to make these E-chains for machines and they made polymer bearings and then they make bearing systems and they make uh, kind of, uh, you know, XY uh, uh, kind of uh, motion systems, stuff like that. And they really started with this material, uh, this polymer, this like especially kind of very, very wear resistant, very smooth. And they took it in to all the places they could in, in, in machines, really, I think. So that's a similar thing. But so, so tell us about the 3D printing aspect itself. Cause, okay. So I'm guessing like you use the 3D printing like for, like to make it, like to, to control the porosity and to make it like a shock absorber. Is it like kind of like a hydraulic shock absorber through the porosity or how does it work? What are you comfortable telling us about how that works? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, none of this is is proprietary at this point. You know, our, our patented state is pretty robust. So I'm, I'm happy to discuss this openly. You know, the device itself doesn't have like moving, like it doesn't have moving components in it like a shock absorber does. But, um, you know, really... Uh, you hit the nail on the head with your first comment that 3D printing is a way for us to to make this you know intricate, highly controlled three dimensional porosity that would be maybe not impossible but extremely difficult with traditional manufacturing. I mean, you certainly couldn't injection mold something like what we're printing, um, and and there probably are you know other ways to potentially like machine it or do other types of deposition. Um, that aren't 3D printing that I think would be very, very time consuming and very costly. I mean, you know, 3D printing is, in our case, it's just a very elegant, elegant way to make these structures. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of time and, you know, relatively low cost to do so. So, you know, our device has, you know, porosity in both the X and Y directions. So, you know, if you're looking straight down at the, you know, the device is roughly the size of a coin. So if you're looking straight down on it, you know, there's a porosity that's, you know, about, about, um, you know, I, don't, I guess I want to say two thirds of a millimeter, you know, in that X and Y. So it kind of looks like a waffle pattern, but then there's also porosity in the, in the Z direction. So as you stack the layers up, uh, and that porosity that exists kind of in the vertical structure is, is much finer. It's like about 200 microns, uh, which is, you know, roughly, uh, a fifth of a millimeter. So, you know, very small, fine porosity basically creates these, these channels and these spaces that, you know, are big enough that, that body fluid and blood can carry cells in. And then they're small enough that cells can attach and are guided by the structures. Wait a minute. So, but the cool thing about this is that you have, well, not only this idea is really, I think, really powerful, but also you can maybe engineer this porosity so that your implant works very, very even superior to any other people. So even if I would take your patent, copy exactly what you're doing, there may be very slight changes in like the ovality of this hole or the hole size and stuff that would make your thing work a lot better than my thing ever could, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, w- I will say uh, without giving too, too much away, you know, we spent a lot of time optimizing the pore geometry, you know, for this application. Um, but I'll also kind of throw out there that we've spent some time and uh, are, are continuing to do additional R&D looking at changing the porosity. And so, you know, again, without going into specifics, we've shown that, you know, if you change the pore, the pore size and the pore shape, um, you can definitely elicit different types of tissue to grow. And you can also get slightly different mechanical properties. So, 
you know, if you think about, um, you know, not just treating these these surface cartilage injuries, which are, are basically in compression, but if you also think about maybe treating, you know, tendons and ligaments, which are also cartilaginous tissues, but they're, you know, sort of naturally engineered to be in tension, so being pulled constantly. You know, we've shown that there are ways that we can potentially modify both the material and the 3D printed structure to accommodate a, a pulling uh, environment rather than a, a, a pressing environment. Uh, and then, and then also, as you mentioned, yeah, changing those things also kind of, kind of catalyzes or, or enhances different types of tissue. Okay. And then, so if I'm thinking about this, like, well, first of all, you know, the, if I'm thinking about this, the challenge of getting this done, I'm thinking two things, like, wow, this is really complicated. And the second thing is this sounds ridiculously expensive to try to try to get all this to work. And the approvals and stuff, it just sounds so yeah. expensive. But this so, is a, so, this yeah. is a type three device, right? So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Four it's definitely a class, class three invasive class device. Three, yeah. You know, we are, and we're, you know, we've we've already been at this for seven years, and I think, you know, one one thing that I'll say too is that, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges with any kind of bi any kind of biotech, whether it's device, pharma, you know, invasive, non-invasive, is just is just fundraising. Um, you know, the cohort of investors that are actually interested and knowledgeable enough to be comfortable investing in medical devices is pretty small. Um, and I'll say the cohort of those investors that are, you know, interested and willing and see the value in a class three device, like what we're doing is even smaller. So, you know, for the first couple of years, I mean, we were primarily grant funded. So we got, you know, a couple of grants from the National Science Foundation and we got a, a grant from uh, an orthopedic, re you know, private orthopedic foundation as well. But, you know, grants, the grant process takes time. You know, we didn't get all those grants on the first try. And so that that creates a lot of time just, just, you know, being able to kind of get like a six figure amount of money to even take this from like a cool idea with a little bit of bench bench science behind it to something that actually has evidence that it works. Um, and then actually translating that into convincing investors to give you <laughs> their money is is, you know, even even different. Uh, you know, and the company's actually, you know, we've done pretty well. Um, you know, to date, we've raised about six point five million dollars. And a million of that has been uh, from grants uh, and non-dilutive funding. But this thing's going to need probably $30 million to, to you know, get through the FDA, especially the, the types of trials you have to do for class three. They're not as involved as a drug, but they're similar to like a drug trial. Um, and, th and then at that point, we, we, you know, the product would be ready to go to market. We you know we're talking about 30 million in and, you know, probably mid to late 2027 is when we're, you know, estimating getting approval from the FDA. But I think from, from the investor perspective, the reason why these types of things, you know, actually pay off is because if you're, if you're focused on the right problem, and if you're focused on something that's a big enough market and something that, you know, the, the big strategics in the space, the Fortune 500 companies, you know, are looking at and want a solution for, again, much like a drug, you, you will get picked up. And so that's really our, our plan. You know, we're not really planning on taking this to market ourselves, you know, we really are building this like a pharma company where, you know, we, we want to get the clinical evidence, we want to get the approvals, but then we want to sell the company to, you know, a, a big ortho device or ortho pharmaceutical company that can, that can really push it out into the market. This is the, the path to market essentially in, in, in that whole or, or uh, the, the orthopedic kind of uh, space, right? Because the big companies don't really do the risky new crazy stuff. And, and yeah. the small companies don't have enough because you're not going to have like whatever the several hundred million dollars, depending on the device it takes to, or the billion dollars, maybe in certain cases to, to, to make this happen. You don't, you know, not even like, there'll be like, you know, how many billion dollar startups are there that actually have like a billion dollars in cash to spend on this kind of stuff, you know? So, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> so I, I think it's nice that you guys are open about this because it is, especially in that space, it's, it is like, uh, you know, you have to go to some town in Pennsylvania and then you sell it, right? That's, that's how, that's how it happens, right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, I mean, you you alluded to the cost uh, that it takes to to market a, a medical product. You know, it's it's um, you know big, expensive marketing campaigns, but also it's it's really done through direct sales. I mean, it's not like you know doctors can't go online to an online marketplace and and buy devices. Although there's some people that are trying to make that happen, but really, I mean, it's it's as an industry really relies on the personal touch of. A direct sales force and a lot of the times you know the reps are 
our product support as well. I mean, especially for like the first like three to five cases, the surgeons will want the rep in the OR teaching them how to use the product. And that's really, it's really essential. Um, and it's, it's frankly really essential for patient safety. I mean, uh, I've had not, not in this space, but like I've, I've talked to people that have been in like marketing and sales and business development and like, you know, cardi cardiac surgery or like cardiothoracic surgery. And, and, you know, they're like in that, in that case, like the reps save lives <laughs> because, you know, the, sur- the surgeons are, you know, they're very intelligent, very highly trained people, but they're people, um, you know, they need to learn how to, how to do this stuff. Um, they don't necessarily just intuitively know. So, yeah, I mean, growing a sales force, you know, growing those relationships takes a lot of time and a lot of money. And, and, and to your earlier point, yeah, I mean, the, the big device companies are at a point now, uh, and even the, the big pharma companies are, are like this a little bit too, that they've really mostly just become, you know, marketers and distributors and in some cases, you know, manufacturers, but they're not really doing the early innovation. They're not, they're not really taking that early risk, but at the same time, they rely on the startup world to actually, de- you know, develop and innovate uh, and, and produce new products. Yeah, uh, and especially in a them. case like this, where yeah, where there really isn't isn't much, and everybody wants a product. You know, everyone's very keenly interested in in kind of what's what's percolating up and what's being developed by the small companies like us. So you're hoping uh, at some point a larger company because just because they have the distribution network comes in and so forth to help aid yeah, that. It, exactly. Yeah. They already have, yeah. the, you know, they already have the, the distribution channel set up, you know, they already have the, the sales force and they already have the customer relationships. Um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a long game to sort of acquire customers and also grow the customer base in the, in this, um, in this area, you know, the kind of the dominant strategy, I think the one that, um, and you could, you could talk to any, ortho device rep and they'll tell you the, the same thing. But, you know, the kind of the dominant strategy is, you know, you might start with a couple big name KOLs. So like famous surgeons that are well known in the space and say, oh, I use the Nanocon and I loved it. And they'll, you know, maybe they'll publish their, you know, post-market results from their first 10 cases or the first 20 cases or whatever. And so you kind of like, you know, get customers that way. Um, you know, you keep them by your direct sales force continuing to, uh, you know, support support those efforts, but then you grow your customer base really by getting this thing into the hands of up and coming surgeons. Um, and I, I've you know heard this time and time again, and I think there's plenty of case studies that you know the best way to kind of have a long lasting market and to and to continue to grow that customer base is you actually get the product into academic institutions, and then you have residents you know being kind of trained up on how to use your product. And so those residents haven't been doing, you know, allograft or a cell therapy or whatever for, you know, their 20 year career. They haven't done any anything. <laughs> They're like learning how to do this for the first time. Uh, and so that's really kind of like always the long term strategy. But again, like, you know, that takes a lot of a lot of time. That takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of people. And the academic institutions are usually like the slowest adopters. You know, they have the most bureaucracy. They have the most process to get approvals to use a new product. So that's also why it takes a lot of time and money. So yeah, when you, when you think about all of that, I mean, the, the sales and marketing budget for like a first to market product is usually like $40 million. <laughs> so you, you know, if you think about, oh, we've raised like 30 something million to get this approved. Now we're going to have to go out and raise a 40 or $50 million growth round. And that's just to like, you know, penetrate the market, to enter the market. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, I mean, the process I described could be, you know, 10 years and a hundred million dollars. So, you know, at a certain point, you know, what's, what's the return for us and what's the return for our investors? It kind of, it kind of stops making sense. There's, there's no reason to kind of like reinvent the wheel when it's already there. And so, yeah, I mean, that would really yeah. be the yeah. ideal scenario for Nanocon as a successful product, um, is that we, you know, we develop it, we get the approvals and we just plug it into somebody else's. You know, and so you're hoping the next 10 to 15 years to be sitting watching TV and a commercial, almost like a drug ad, comes on saying Nanocon, <laughs> the ultimate knee treatment. <laughs> yeah. I know that only happens in the US. Joris isn't as familiar with this kind of advertising. I'm passionate I'm in America. This whole thing yeah. about like when they, they just come on, you see these like happy people, and you're like, 
oh my god, these people are so happy. I want to be happy yeah. like them. Oh look, yeah. she's so young too, but she has grandchildren. This is great. <laughs> and then she's like, thanks to Plakalakalax, and then uh, and I am side now effects may not, include not in anymore, and I can go yeah. skydiving with my children, yeah. grandchildren. <laughs> and it was like, wow, this is amazing. I'm not even incompetent, yeah. uh, incompetent, but and, and then I can't even go skydiving. So what is this? You know? <laughs> And then they have like the most fun part is that one part where they say like like this is one like thirty second thing where it's like yeah the side effects may include she, section it's always yeah, the side effects yeah. Are, yeah. Like, 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 doctor and like, it goes like really crazy I'm like wow uh, yeah other side people that may are include suicide other uh, people that are the target for this ad really gonna uh, understand that really quick voice going really fast I, I don't know I, I just I no, like it's to just watch the of order, our system so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I watch Law and Order a lot when I'm in the States. I'm in the hotel. It's like kind of like like decompression thing. And then you have like apparently like there's, there's medical ads all the all day. All, all day. <laughs> so I'm I'm familiar with that. Thanks for my trips and stuff. But, so so first of all, Ben, just about these. Uh, it's like you were a researcher originally, right? And now we didn't even talk about this, but you you've done a, you are also kind of in parallel. There's a couple of other companies you've got going on as well, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I. Um... Yeah, it's been kind of a wild ride. I mean, I, um, yeah, I started as an academic researcher and, you know, was in a lab that was broadly speaking, working on, you know, scaffolding, this, you know, so-called scaffolding for, for tissue regrowth, you know, pretty keenly focused more on, you know, bone and cartilage. But yeah, I mean, working with 3D printing, working with different materials, trying to make these things that cells would grow on and then, you know, develop into mature tissues. Um, but I, I kind of got exposure to entrepreneurship early on. Um, my university started to really invest heavily in entrepreneurship. So I would say probably like, you know, two years into my PhD, I, I sort of thought this might be something I wanted to do. Um, it might be a path for me after I graduate. And so with that in mind, I sort of was always on the hunt for opportunities um, to, to you know, work with other companies or, or kind of like learn the business as it were. And I actually got introduced to, you know, two other entrepreneurs uh, from my university. They were two doctors in the, in the ER department. And they basically, did, you know, developed concepts for this device to make placing, uh, you know, IV catheters in, you know, critical care patients and, and critical settings where you need to be able to, you know, get either get fluids and, and drugs into somebody fast or you need to be able to draw blood really quickly. Um so they kind of developed this device where it, you know it basically makes placing a catheter easier, and you can do it in somebody who is like coming into the ER or is in the ICU. So that was the idea. Has nothing to do with orthopedics. Has nothing to do with tissue engineering. But you know, I saw it as an opportunity to, to join a company that you know had a really good idea, was kind of doing something in the device space, and had potential for really fast growth because they had they had just won a business plan competition, and then they they also had just secured about a million dollars in seed funding. So I, I basically joined the company as employee one, um, because these are two doctors, they had a, you know, really slick, really, really great business plan and a really great presentation. But when it came to the product, like literally, they were still putting the napkin sketches <laughs> in their in their pitch deck. So they were lacking on the engineering side. And, you know, I had a, a you know background as a mechanical engineer, and I did a lot of just design stuff, CAD work, um, you know, before my PhD. And so I kind of approached them. It's like, hey, like, you know, for a little bit of equity, I would love to, you know, work with you, kind of like learn, learn about the business, just a general like a medical device startups and kind of help you actually design the product. So I actually helped them design and build the first working prototypes, which were, you know, again, like kind of demonstrating the concept. But, you know, you could actually mount a captor on them and you kind of, kind of demonstrate how it worked like in a phantom. Um, and then I basically kind of stayed involved in that, in that company in a, in a variety of different roles over the years. Um, so, you know, I started very much as a, as a technical person. I basically worked with um, their manufacturing partner to kind of translate those prototypes into, into, you know, designs that could be manufactured, you know, helped test the, the product initially, you know, helped, helped them do their FDA testing, did a lot of stuff on the patent side. Uh, and then all, all the while was sort of like in the background observing, you know, how a small company and a small team, you know, manages, you know, how you raise money, how you tell the story, and, you know, and even how you start to think about marketing. I think that's the thing that was it's also interesting is, you know, that company is is a class one device. So it's, you know, 
the one of the lowest levels of, of regulatory clearance. They basically just had to do some bench testing and standard bios, biocompatibility and biosafety testing to get approval. Um, so also being able to be with a company that, uh, you know, kind of extends a little bit in, in its life cycle. And so, you know, at this point, it, it's kind of interesting how that experience has also played off my time with Nanocon because like I've also learned quite a lot from Nanocon and, you know, have been successful there and I've been able to kind of parlay those successes back into how I help Sonostick. And so I'm actually now on the board of directors of Sonostick and, re and really serve in, in very much like a managerial role, um, you know, rather than like, as an as just an employee or as a you know in a purely technical role so it's, it's been a really really interesting uh ride for sure and you know despite all the challenges and, and all the difficulties you know i i really am passionate about innovation i'm really passionate about you know not just developing these products and technologies but also how these companies are kind of managed and grown uh and so it's just, yeah it's been it's been really gratifying uh and i'm just really glad that i can kind of continue to support them and also frankly you know kind of continue to be humbled because you know that company um you know with with literally any startup uh, you know I've, I've heard ceos of like you know 40 million dollar in the bank companies talk about how you know there's always something there's always something that's come up there's always some challenge and it's just a very always a very dynamic environment no matter the size of the company no matter what stage you're at so i just i continue to to really kind of love the work um and just really kind of love the challenges that come along with it well, Ben, thank you so much. It's really inspiring. I think this is really uh, an amazing uh, device. I think it's an amazing opportunity. I mean, uh, the road's still going to be quite long, I think. But yeah, but I think uh, I think about seventy percent of people in OECD countries are going to have problems with their cartilage or some of that, or osteoarthritic uh, kind of problems. So the opportunity and the the, the good you could do with this is also going to be uh, enormous if you su succeed with this. So uh, yeah, so it's the best luck to you, and um, thank you so much for being on our show today. Yeah, really, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you guys having me on. And Max, thanks for being here again. Thank you, Joyce. This was a good one on the whole uh, using a medical device, but in a different way than we normally think about it and additive. So it was, uh, it was interesting to see that. So good luck with that. Definitely. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod, and you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.